Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of MCG Rants. It is, uh, what time is it? A little after noon on Tuesday, August the 2nd, so if everybody hears this. Um, we're going to cover some magic in this episode. Ross had a big win over the weekend. We're going to talk about the amazing, cool, crazy deck that he played. Uh, you know, uh, by the way, nice to see you put your money where your mouth is, as, as if we could use that turn of phrase, <laughs> right? You know, you're like, oh, I'm going to play this deck. I think it's good. And then easily, like, he just texts me. I, I love it. I get this text after the tournament. Ross just goes, deck is absolutely busted. I didn't lose a match today. I won the RCQ. And I was like, yeah, good beats. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know it's good stuff. Um, however, it is one of my favorite days of the entire year. And why is that, Ross? Um, I'm assuming because of what happened about an hour before we started recording. Yeah, so it's the MLB trade deadline today. And so we got a lot of moves last night. We just had... Oh, I didn't realize today was the deadline. Yeah, today's the deadline. And so a lot of moves happened last night before and after the games. And then just now, the single biggest trade in the history of baseball just happened. We're going to talk about this a little bit. Obviously, I'm big into baseball. Obviously, we're going to talk about this. So um, hopefully... If you don't want to listen to this, obviously you can jump forward a little bit. Uh, we might put a timestamp out with this because I don't know how long this is going to go. But if you like listening to people talk about stuff they love or whatever, blah, 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 we're going to talk a lot about this. And it's going to go over more than just baseball as well. Like other sports are going to get involved in this talk because this is the biggest deal in the history of the sport. And we're going to talk about why and stuff like that. So um, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, uh, let me I'm, I'm going to make sure I get all the names right because we're not even 100% sure on the exact trade yet because it's it's very fluid, but it's it's done. Like the parameters are done. But Juan Soto has been traded from the Washington Nationals to the San Diego Padres. Now, why is this such a big deal, Ross? I want to hear like your opinion on why it's such a big deal that Juan Soto gets traded and then I'll start saying my stuff. So uh, I, I don't follow baseball too closely these days, mm-hmm. but... I, I know Juan Soto's name, which means mm-hmm. he's very good. Yes. And I'm now on his baseball reference page, and he is 23. That's that's the big deal, right? And and I'm going to bring this up. There's a lot of guys that don't even get to the majors at 23. In, in fact, you usually don't. Yeah. You usually okay. do not. Usually you make it around like 24, 25, and your prime is at 27 and 28. He made it to the world's. I mean, I'm sorry. He made it to the majors three years ago. He's been in the league for three years. He was the youngest player in the game when he came up. And since that day... There's a lot of people that have said, and I've actually been one of the people saying it, that he's just the best hitter in the game. Like, just the best pure hitter in the game the entire time. Yeah. I mean, his his OPS plus is 160, which means he's 60% above league average, and that's for his career. From age 19 to age 23, you know, before his prime. Uh, so, still room to grow there. That that number is like Ted Williams. 160. Yeah, he's, he's literally Ted Williams, Barry Bonds, whatever kind of comp. Like, his, I would be astounded if he didn't make the Hall of Fame and he's literally three years into his career. It would it would take major injury or like something really crazy happening for him to not make the Hall of Fame at this point. Like think of every player that you saw in the first couple years of their careers where you're like, this guy's it. You know, and you see like Luca it's the first couple years, so Jordan, you know, uh going through baseball, like Ken Griffey, like when you see those first couple years and you th- you think of the astronomical things you can do, that's this guy. Like he is that. Like he is. Yeah. He is a guaranteed Hall of Famer as long and, as he stays on the field. And if you know anything about about the economics of sports, you know having great players on their your know, early deals, their rookie deals, uh, is incredibly valuable because it offers you an you know an asset that is well below the market rate, and you can then use that savings to build a really good team around them. 
Uh, now, you know, the, the three sports that I'm most familiar with are, are baseball, football, basketball, and the economics of the three work very differently. Yeah, very drastically different. Yes. So, so what you have to understand, if you're not a sports person, uh, you know, football has a hard cap. Uh, the NBA, there are the NFL has a hard cap. The NBA has a soft cap, which means there are ways to go over it legally, different exceptions and rules. Mostly, most of the rules involve keeping your own players. You're allowed to like, go rule, over the, the yeah. You're allowed yeah. to go over the cap to re-sign your own players. Um, and then baseball d- doesn't have a cap, though they do have a luxury tax, which basketball also has. Yeah, so like when people hear no cap, they're like LOL, like yeah. full cap, you know, whatever the kids want to say, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's a joke. When you go over the amount that you're allowed, you start getting taxed at a higher rate. And this isn't like taxing billionaires. They actually tax you. And they start <laughs> taxing you at absurd rates, depending on how high you're up. Yeah. So, like, your dollar stops stops being a dollar and, start, and starts being, like, 35 cents at that point because they're taxing you at, like, 60-something percent. So you just have to give up a fuck ton of money. And that goes to revenue sharing to the other teams to kind of, like, help level the playing field and stuff like that. It's very, very complicated. I'm also not a finance lawyer, so I'm not going to get into the minutia of stuff. But Well, so, so what I uh, the reason I bring that up is because if you only follow one of those sports, you, you can't really translate the way trades right. work because the economics of the sports dictates how valuable top talent is. So uh, in the NFL, for example, because of that hard cap, even really good players, if they're on a big contract, can be somewhat not, not valuable because it's, it very much restricts your ability to build the rest of the roster. And football rosters are huge. You have, you have 53, uh, I believe, is the, the NFL roster size. Um, so you, you got to pay a lot of people. So it ends up uh, so that players right before they're getting their, their big deal often get traded. A uh, recent example was A.J. Brown with the Titans. Titans didn't want to extend him for the money that he wanted, so they traded him and got s- some uh, draft assets out of it. In the in the NBA, there's also a max contracts um, that players can be offered, so that the elite talent that are actually in an open market would be worth more than that max figure end up being also super valuable because they're still an undervalued asset. Um, and so it, it can become really valuable to trade for the, those team, those players, even at a high contract number, because it, you know, it's a, it's also a, the smallest rosters you have, uh, you know, minimum 13 max 15 on an NBA roster. Uh, so, you know, you see those, uh, those guys get traded, you know, or they actually don't get traded very often because, you know, teams are going to keep those assets baseball, you know, it is yeah, another large roster sport, uh, but because you have the uh, you know the least salary restriction with just the luxury tax and no real cap, uh, it's easier to just sign guys to, to big deals. Now, certain t- certain owners are really cheap about it and just won't do it because they're just out to make money. But the teams that do spend will just spend uh, you know and keep that that talent on their team. So I would say, in general, it's the NBA where uh, players are traded, like those top players are traded the, the least often. Um, and the NFL, is, you know, I mean, they're really in no sport are they traded all that often, especially this young. Um, but, you know, the with baseball, the 
I don't know. I'm I'm kind of rambling, and I'm not sure where I'm going. I need to like compose more thoughts here. Let me let me. Okay, I'll take yeah. over for a second. So, what Ross is trying to say here, he's trying to give you like an overall like arcing look at the thing, but he's going a little too deep for some people. Yeah. With, like you know, hey, this involves money. Like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Obviously, we'll we'll get into that piece by piece. The big thing here is you're trading one of the best players in the game when he's 23. Like he has so much room to get better. And then even if he stays at his current course for the next 10 years, which is a very, very doable thing for a player like him, he's easily a Hall of Famer. So that's the kind of thing they're getting. Now, here's the big deal. He's only under contract for two more seasons after this, and then he'll he'll go to free agency. The reason the Nationals are trading him, one of the big reasons is, is they've offered him two contract extensions, both of which would have been uh, for the final dollar amount, the biggest contracts in sports history. In, in North America, not just not just baseball, sports history. And we're talking over four hundred million a piece, upwards of four hundred fifty million dollars for like I think it was like fourteen year deal. He said no, and a lot of people balked at that. Obviously, you know four hundred fifty million dollars. Like where do I sign, right? And honestly, after looking at it, the the peripherals and the specifics of the deal, I would have said no if I was him as well. It, it worked out there where he's only making, I think, like $29 million a year. And, like, I know I'm saying only $29 million a year. That would not even put him in the top, like, I think, like, seven or eight players in the Major League Baseball. You know? And I'm like, this guy's worth more than... If, like, if he was a free agent right now, he would get $500 million from somebody. So Somebody would just break the bank. Somebody would be like, whatever. G- give him whatever he wants. Put, put him on the team. Right? Like, so, someone would do it. But now he's with the Padres. Only the Padres can negotiate with him until he's a free agent. So... I'm assuming they think they can get something done with him, but there's no guarantee. He has to sign the dotted line. you know. So they may only get him for these two years. Now, the talent going back to Washington is very considerable. There's other players involved, too. Like, like we're not 100% sure. I think San Diego is getting two players out of this. They're getting another good player as well. Um, but there's been some back and forth. There's a guy named Eric Hosmer that plays for San Diego. Uh, if you follow baseball, you might remember this name. He was a big part of the Kansas City Royals when they yeah, won the World he was Series. a huge prospect for them. Right, he was really good, and he signed a huge deal with the Padres. I think it's about four or five years now at this point ago. And it's been a uh, – that one has not worked out. It has not been good. And I remember when he signed it, I was like, what the hell? Like, I cannot believe San Diego gave him this much money. And then he's been even worse than I thought he would be. He has a full no-trade clause. Now, that's usually just a hurdle in deals. Like, players with no-trade clauses get dealt all the time because usually what happens is, is they're like, hey – we're going to trade you in this deal. And he's like, well, I'll just veto the deal. I don't want to go. Because what that does is it gives you more bargaining power. What they'll usually do is be like, all right, we'll give you $10 million. Like that that legit happens. They're like, we'll just brick you off a giant chunk of money. And they're like, okay. And <laughs> he just said no. He's like, I just don't want to go to Washington. I don't want to go. Like Washington's not going to win any more games this year. They're going to be very, very bad. They were already in last place. And now they just lost two of their best players. And they were in a bad spot. Here's the thing traditionally you know you you and i joked about this before the show uh you know we talk about you know how do you compare this like if you're a hockey guy this is like similar to the eric lindros deal you know just in size and weight uh you know you think about baseball i mean i'm sorry football i think of the herschel walker deal you know dallas in the in i think 89 i think is the herschel walker deal i think it was 89 yeah uh and then set up the the cowboy dynasty of the 90s yeah maybe the harden deal the first time you know some some deals like that right or i i actually like to compare it to the ad deal to, yeah, to, to the I, Lakers. I would compare him more to Anthony yeah. Davis yeah, than, just than getting, Harden. Yeah, just getting some guy whose stats are off the fucking chart. He's young. You're like acquiring, and you have to just give up everything 
for them, like literally yeah. everything, right? And that's what's happening here. Um, traditionally, I know AD is a little different because they won the title right away. Traditionally, when you look at those other deals, they haven't always worked out super great for the team that acquired the superstar. Like the other teams, you know, um, Dallas is very famous for having traded away Herschel Walker and then turning into a dynasty immediately after. You know, they got Emmett Smith as part of that deal in the uh, as one of the picks they got, plus a yeah. bunch of other stuff, and then it just worked out. And then Minnesota never won a Super Bowl. Same thing happened with the Eric Lindros trade. Uh, you know, it was the, uh, I forgot they were one of the Canadian teams and they became the avalanche and like, they just got absurd amounts of talent. They like won a Stanley cup. were like really good and Philly yeah, number one, one uh, Joe Sockick and Ray Bork in the late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple, like a, like a couple hall of famers were involved in this as well. Like just huge, huge names. Now the nationals are getting, I think it was like five or six players, uh, two of which are already in the major leagues for, for San Diego and like producing pretty well, like very young guys, McKenzie Gore and CJ Abrams. Um, Gore, very good left-hander. It's put up really good numbers. He's kind of hurt right now, but they the, his numbers. I mean, his uh, medicals just came back with like no actual damage to his arm, which is you know obviously a big no deal. Structural but, damage, as yeah, no structural say. damage. But they're like they're gonna, they're going to take him easy for the rest of the year. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, hey, dude, just chill. And then yeah. um, Abrams is a really really good like middle infielder who's just going to very good talented guy, right? And then there's like three or four prospects that are being added. It's like, it's, I think it's like their number one, their number three, like their number like seven, and they're like their number ten, like prospect, yeah. right? And, and this sounds like a lot, but this is kind of how baseball trades go yes. because the farm systems are so big. Like every every organization has you know a hundred players under it across the various levels of minor league baseball between single A, double A, triple A, and and then their major league roster. Uh, and there's you know multiple levels of single A even there, so. And yet, the, the prospect number thing is fluid, too. Like, the number one prospect in one organization is not equal to the number one prospect in another organization. Like, if you take the number one prospect in the Atlanta Braves organization and put them in San Diego, I don't even know if they crack the top five. Like, our, our farm system is very bad now compared to San Diego's because of how good we are at the major league level. We've graduated all of our young talent to the major league level. Yeah, so and it's, haven't it's replenished it yet. It's that, a good, that ebb and flow happens yes. a lot. It's a good problem to have. That means you're yeah. like generally when your your farm system is bad. Generally, when your farm system is bad, your your major league team is pretty good. When you have both, like you start looking at teams like the Braves, start looking at teams like the Dodgers in San Diego, who just have like this like overarching just embarrassment of riches, right? And for San Diego to be able to pull this off and sell this much talent is kind of crazy. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they won a World Series with this, but like here's the thing: they still have to go through the Dodgers, the Mets, the Braves, and like the other good teams in the National League. So good luck. You know what I mean? Like they, they, we're still the defending champs. You still got to beat the Dodgers, who are really, really good and stuff too. So we'll see. They're, San Diego, I love their GM. He's very much a all in. Like, like you could tell this dude played uh, fantasy baseball when he was younger. He's just like, yeah, let's do it, let's move it. You know, and he's ready to go. And I mean, the, the prospects they're getting are no joke either. They're very good, right? Like their number one prospect's very good. Their number three is this kid, something Wood, I think is his name, and he's like a six seven left handed hitting out center fielder. Who are like there's a lot of people saying like he's actually the best piece in this deal probably a six seven center yeah, he's a fielder monster. yeah he's a monster like okay size is like not a thing they've they've been kind of shying away from the size thing being a thing and like they can they can change a little bit too like um, O'Neill Cruz in Pittsburgh is like a six 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 seven shortstop that throws a hundred I don't know if you've seen this kid and hits the ball a fucking mile you know but he's playing shortstop at the major league level like if the, if the guys are good enough just like let them do it until they can't anymore. Yeah, you know, what I mean? it's like the Cal Ripken thing. You remember that he was too big to play shortstop. You remember a Rod? He was too yeah. big to play shortstop. Like, yeah. I mean, 
I would say in the infield, that stuff can be overblown because infield is so much of that is just reaction time and size is going to give you more range anyway with your length. Center fielder, you got to move. Yeah. So we'll see. Well, I mean, people definitely move at six, seven, you know, but yeah, definitely you don't see that every day. I think I figured out the point I was trying to make, by the way, and it's that, you know, I think it, you know, Trades for young stars don't happen in, in any league very often. Right. I would say they most often happen in the NFL, uh, largely because players come up more quickly in the NFL and the cap is so restrictive that sometimes, like, you know, players become cap casualties, even if they're really good. Yeah. Um, they basically never happen in baseball just because of the point we brought up early where, like, players just don't get to the major leagues early enough. To where also there's so much control too, like they yeah. have control over this player for so long. Yeah. yeah. So if 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 you have control for their first you know four or five seasons in the MLB and their first season happens at 23, 24, like you're not trading them until they're in their late twenties. So to have a guy come up at nineteen and then you know be in a situation where the team is you know going to trade him at twenty three because you know a team in that situation is going to have to be bad without really a way to improve, which is also like yeah. you know doesn't happen all that often because yeah. it requires a significant amount of mistakes to have been made by you know their, their front office. So, uh, and, and as you were talking to me before the show, Washington has made. Several of those in recent years. This is a t- they won the the World Series what four years ago? I think three, maybe three or, f- three or four. Yeah, yeah. I think they're three years clear of their World Series title. So here's the crazy part, right? If you think about the talent the Nationals have had go through their organization over the last four or five years, I'm going to name a few names. And if you follow baseball here, um, you'll probably recognize every one of them. And if you're a Nationals fan, I'm sorry. So I'm going to start this off. I'm going to go off the top of my head, okay, Ross? So yeah. Bryce Harper, obviously Juan Soto, Anthony Rendon. Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, Kyle Schwarber. All of these guys are making absurd money everywhere they play, and they're all just perennial all-stars. Rendon's barely played in the last year and a half. He's been hurt. But Rendon is like the, one of the biggest contracts in baseball. Trey Turner's about to sign the, one of the biggest contracts in baseball. Scherzer is, has the highest average annual, annual salary in baseball. Uh, Schwarber just signed a $100 million deal. Uh, Harper, one of the highest paid has one of the biggest contracts in history, and Soto's about to break every one of those. Soto's about to have the biggest contract in history. I don't know if he'll have the highest average salary because I don't know if they can afford that for you know ten or fifteen years. Uh, you know, Scherzer's deal was weird. He got like a three-year deal at like forty-three million a year or whatever. <laughs> so you know, we'll see what happens. But Soto's about to have the biggest contract in history, just period, right? And so you have all of that talent that came through there. They won a World Series. It's funny after Harper left, right? They lose an MVP. They win the World Series after that. A lot to do with the fact that Juan Soto came up that year and started going nuts, right? You know, as a rookie. I remember watching him as a rookie, and there was a lot of hype behind him. He was up around the same time as Acuna, and that was a big talk. Like, who's better, Ronald Acuna Jr. or Juan Soto? And I will readily admit that Juan Soto is a much better hitter than Ronald Acuna Jr. Acuna is a little more exciting. You know, he does a few more other things, but, like, he just doesn't have the discipline that Soto has. And so here's the thing. There's a stat called OPS+. Plus. It's on base plus slugging. Right, So it takes two different stats. So it takes your slugging percentage, which is just a general way of of how hard you hit the ball. Like on average, what kind of hits do you get? Are you like a singles hitter, a double hitter, a triple hitter, a a double hitter, a homer hitter? Because when you get doubles or triples or homers, 
you get a higher percentage of uh, of a slugging percentage, and so yeah. that means like the guys it's who total bases are at that, over at yeah. bats. I'm total bases is just four for, for a run, three for a triple, and so on. Yeah, so the higher the number, generally, the harder you hit the ball. The more, the better the outcome yeah. is when you the, hit the ball. Your hits are more valuable on average. Yes, and then on the base percentage is how often you get hits and walks. Yeah, and on base is how often you get on base versus when you don't. And, and th- those were the two things that if, you know, those were the two original sort of money ball stats. Yes, uh, and if you have good good of those, it's yeah. probably so, one of the truest ways to, to value yeah. a hitter. If you just sum those, that's the most readily available, you know, good stat. And then OPS plus is that normalized, so 100 is league average for yeah, that 100, year. 100 um, is league average. So, and then, as I said, yeah. Juan Soto is at a 160 for his career. So I want to talk about that. So you're talking about he's at 160 for his career, and he's 23. Uh, I have a list of the highest OPSs through an age 23 season in the modern era. So that means from 1900 on, of players who have at least at bats. You know, they've played, so they have over a thousand at bats or over 1500 plate appearances. Do you want to hear the list of like the top 10? Uh, so it's it's Babe Ruth, Barry Bonds are are the top They're two. They're actually not on the uh, the list. Oh, that do we not have it's through age 23? Oh, through so, age 23. Baylor okay. took a little bit of time. Um, so bonds, yeah, yeah. So. Okay, I thought you were just saying career. So, through age 23, so, I would say... he's uh, 23 now. I'm comparing him to like where he is yeah. in his career versus... Him, I, would, so. I would guess uh, Mickey Mantle, Ken Griffey Jr. are probably near the top of that I'm list. Just gonna, I'm just going to I'm just gonna name it off because you got, you've got you gotten one of them. All right, so I'm just going to name the, the names real quick. Ted Williams, Ty Cobb, Mike Trout, Stan Musial, Albert Pujols, Juan Soto, Eddie Matthews, Mickey Mantle, Jimmy Fox, Mel Ott. Here's the thing. On that list, every player that isn't playing literally today is a slam dunk hall of famer is yeah is in the hall of fame and like not even close to not being in the hall of fame yeah you just named you know 10 of the 30 best hitters of all time yeah include yeah and that includes mike trout who's playing now yeah and soto's in the middle of the pack and like you know pools is literally playing now trout's playing now those guys are if they stop today guaranteed hall of famers um you know if soto god forbid some tragedy happened like there would probably be a talk about putting him in the hall of fame you know because of what he'd done up to this point and yeah, it's it's wild. I mean, we we knew this would be a wild uh, trade deadline this year because there's like extra playoff spots, and like if this happened, this automatically makes it insane. But I, I you know, we're gonna look back on this in two or three years and really, really get a better sense of this. Like what happens with him in San Diego, and then what happens with some of these kids, right? Because some of these kids are a couple years away from being ready for major leagues. Obviously, not all of them are gonna hit, but they they could. And when I say hit, mean like make the major leagues, because whenever I see a trade like this with this much talent going from one place to the other, one of the things that pops up in my head is I remember when the Atlanta Braves traded for Mark Teixeira in the height of his career when he was at Texas, and he was like kind of a hometownish boy, and they're like, and we were like, oh, we're going to trade for him, and we're going to sign him, and he's going to be our first baseman for the next like you know eight years or whatever, you know, give him a huge yeah. deal, and we didn't know that. Uh, he actually had no plans of signing with us and wanted to be a Yankee and get the most money possible. And like he ended up, you know, leaving us and signing with the Yankees. He, well, we traded him to Anaheim, then he signed it to the Yankees. Very complicated thing. But they said in the press conference, he was like, "Yeah, the, the it was the the goal was to always be a Yankee. Like I always wanted to be here." And so Atlanta's like, "Whatever." But the haul which we gave up for him was huge. Like I remember, I was like, we gave up like four or five players, and I was like, "This is so much." But like whatever, you know, we get Mark Teixeira in his prime, and he was he was good. You know, he was good for us, but we barely got a full year out of him. I think it was like we gave up five players, four of which all made the major leagues, like three of which were all-stars or something like that. It was like, it's it's considered like a very bad trade, you know, it, like when you go back and look at it. And yeah. we'll have to see what happens here and what kind of level 
of what Washington gets out of this to even be like, this is fair. You know, because like that's the thing. If like three of these guys are all stars, is that even still fair if Soto is a Hall of Famer and just, you know, winning MV? Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he wins multiple MVPs during his career. Multiple. And I mean, that's a wild thing to think about the fact that this kid just got traded. Like, it just blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I can't recall a time of a guy getting traded at, you know, at a younger age. At, you know, it just does. It's ridiculous. And now the Padres, like, they've been pretty active the last few years. It's like they're the team that signed Machado. Yeah, they signed Machado. Uh, here's the funny thing. Tatis hasn't played a game yet this year, but he's coming back very soon. So they're okay. going to have Machado, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Juan Soto in the middle of the lineup. Like, I actually thought that, you know, everybody was like, talking about San Diego's really good this year. I actually thought they were very exposable. I thought their offense was nowhere near as good as it needed to be, and their pitching is iffy at times. They have a lot of names in their pitching staff. Some of them are good. Some of them are, you know, you see that name, and you're like, oh, that guy's good. I'm like, actually, he's not that good anymore. But, I mean, you just added the best hitter in baseball in the middle of a already decent lineup, and then, like, all this stuff. I mean, there's just so much going on. So, I mean, it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be hectic. Um, you have another superpower now in the National League. I mean, like, that lineup's insane. So we'll see what happens. Maybe they can they can stop the Dodgers. Because, like, that's the thing. It's still, like, every year, it's like, it's funny. We're the defending champs, and it's still, hey, can anyone stop the Dodgers every year? Because that team's just always so absurd. So Yeah, ever ever since the, the they got bought, you know, that ownership group has yeah. been spending. They, they want to compete. Yeah, same thing with San way. Diego too, right? And like, here's the other thing too. Um, the I think the the th- this is the biggest surprise the trade deadline, right? Like that Soto actually did get traded, like you know, blah blah blah. There was actually another really really big surprise during the trading deadline yesterday. Yesterday, I don't know if you heard about this, but it didn't involve a trade. Uh, the Atlanta Braves actually made a big move yesterday that didn't involve a trade. Did you hear about this? I did not. Do you know who Austin Riley is our third baseman, our young third baseman that's really really good? Yeah. Vaguely. We gave him a ten-year deal yesterday. How much? Uh, like two hundred twenty million, two hundred thirty million. So he went from making almost nothing, you know, a couple million to twenty million a year immediately. So good for that kid. Yeah. Um, he's absurd. He's been one of the best hitters in baseball, you know, over the last about year and a half, two years. He's unreal. He's going to stay there. That's huge. I love that. And the big thing about this is you're seeing, um, you know, you might have, you know, if you a fan of the show and you've ever heard me talk about Atlanta. I love how well run of an organization we are because we were like a middle of the pack um, payroll system, right? You know, we weren't spending as much as a lot of the big name teams, so we were spending more than, you know, the Oakland A's and stuff, but who doesn't, right? You know, Baltimore Orioles, like the teams that spend their money badly and stuff. We're spending money better than them and stuff, but we've been climbing the ladder. And with this going on, and if we make another move or two like this season and next year, there's a chance that we start moving into like a top five payroll and can stay there. And they're saying that like, this is something that A, like they're comfortable with and B, they're like, this might just happen as a natural progression of the way the, the team and the organization's going. And it makes sense, right? You know, they're defending the world champions. They made a ton of money last year. It's funny because uh, they're actually owned by a corporation instead of like a bunch of people like most uh, like most teams are. So their financials have to be public. So every, you know, every quarter you get to see how well the Braves are doing and they're crushing it. And that's only like direct reports of the team. You don't see like, you know, they had the new stadium with the whole surrounding area and they keep adding on to it, adding on to it. This team is just printing money right now. And it's a big deal, too, to be a big team in Atlanta, Georgia, because you have this dominance over an area that almost no other team has. Like Seattle comes to mind, but like it's I think it's just a little different. 
than Seattle, Washington, and then Atlanta, Georgia, with the denseness of population around you. And the fact that there's just no other team within eight hours of you in any direction. You know what I mean? You're just in this huge bubble. So, like, everyone in that area is, like, just a Braves fan. I mean, like, I'm using, I'm, I'm being, you know, hyperbolic here. Everyone. You get what I'm saying, though. Most of the people there, they're just Braves fans. Like, it's just how it is. You know, here, everyone's an LSU fan, right? But if you go an hour or two to the left, everyone's a Texas fan. You go an hour or two to the right, everyone's a, a Bama fan. But there, just everyone wants to go to or watch the Atlanta Braves. And so, I would also it makes sense. generally say that Atlanta is more of a baseball city than, yeah. you know, any other sport. Yeah. And there's, there's not many big cities that do that. Like New York, maybe, except for like when the Knicks are good, it, like, it's arguable, but like New York, maybe. Yeah, they, they, they still have the Giants, too. True. Like, in Chicago, but... like if the Bulls are good, like like think about, you know, in the 90s, no one cared about Chicago baseball. Like, you know, maybe they yeah. care about Sosa. Like, but that's the, the only time record, the, but... the Bulls have been good, really. Yeah, yeah. They... So you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they just have this like monopoly in the area. And I've always said this, like, why can't we spend as much as some of these teams? Like, we've got to be... I mean, we're not on par with Boston and New York. Like, we never will be, right? Like, their TV contracts are, like, all the stuff. You know, there's a lot of money up there. But, like, we could get close. And, you know, it's going to. So that's that's a thing that I'm I'm looking forward to because you have to be able to compete not just at, like, being better than everybody when it comes to running organization, kind of like Tampa does. But then, like, when you're playing as a team that has, like, three times your payroll or double your payroll and they have all these superstars, like, it's still hard to compete no matter how well you've done. So it's going to be nice to see if we can start getting up to that as well, because you see teams like San Diego building super teams, you know, this feels like an NBA team, right? Like a big three, you know, kind of situation. So yeah. anyway, I think that's enough about baseball. Do you have any more questions or anything? Um, no, I just, it's going to be, going to be an interesting rest of the season, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to watch the Braves game tonight and all they're going to talk about is the Soto stuff. Like that's how big of a deal this is. If you watch any broadcast of any baseball game tonight, they will talk about Soto for an extended period of time and he's not going to be involved in the game whatsoever. It could be two teams that have like barely played against him or whatever. And they're going to talk about this. But that's how big it is. Like this is KD trade in his height, you know, like this is MJ trade in his height kind of thing and stuff. So very interesting. All right, uh, so if we move on to the next subject, all I have written down here is Ross is great. That's true. That's just a true statement. So for the timestamp for everybody at home, if, if Brent was literally 30 minutes. There you go. That's pretty <laughs> easy. 30 minutes in. <laughs> Sorry, Brent. Sorry you had to listen Jesus, to all that. I didn't realize hey, it went that long. I, uh, I put in some hockey just for Brent, by the way. I'm sure he's going to correct me on some stuff or, you know, some of the players or whatever, but I'm sure I'll get corrected on my pronunciation of their names because I only know them for playing NHL video games in the late nineties. I know them for, I mostly know them for watching sports and are like crazy when I was a kid, you know, you hear, you like, you know, you see their names or you hear their names a lot. Like I would have said, Oh, it's Patrick Roy. No, it's Patrick Wah, you know, and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> so, uh, I, so, I knew that one. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you did. Of course Just you want to get that in. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you did. It was Patrick Wah. Something you did know this weekend was that uh, your deck was busted while I was a little skeptical, and uh, it seems like it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I honestly, you know, you when you take a risk like that, you never really know what exactly what to expect. You know, you're hoping for the best because that's always awesome when you know things go your way. Um, but you know, if things crash and burn, you kind of look like an idiot. Uh, fortunately, I, I got the extreme high end of uh, of the spectrum there. Uh, and uh, the the deck worked great all uh, you know all throughout the the event. It was a relatively small RCQ uh, at Star City Games. I was actually a little surprised. I knew that they based on the space they have there that they would cap it at forty eight, 
but I was certainly expecting a six round, you know, six rounds of Swiss. Instead, we had 31. So about, you know, one fewer than the biggest five rounder you can you can get, mm-hmm. um, which which made it relatively simple. You know, there's going to be some some four ones and some uh, some three oh twos. And, uh, you know, well, unless the four color players who draw all the time, you know, muck it up. But it ended up being you know, pretty simple where actually two of the X ones got to draw. Uh, but I, I three of the Swiss matchups. There were, um, let's say, a, a little more varied. I, I started my day against uh, Teamer Scapeshift. You know, when they, when they bolted my Raghavan or Unholy Heated it by fetching a stomping ground with their Misty Rain Forest, I was a little confused for a second. Yeah, I'd be confused. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I figured it out pretty quickly. Um, that match actually went into time, and I won on turn four of extra turns. <laughs> so had a, had a bit of a, a nail-biter to start my day. Though uh, game two, I, I think I, my opponent got a little lucky. Uh, where I had them hell bent, and I was you know attacking them. The game was going to basically be done in three turns, and uh, they had five lands, no cards in hand, and their three draw steps were land six, land seven, scape shift to kill you. Uh, and then, uh, but and game three, I thought I had the combo set up when I resolved my Teferi, and I have the combo, and I start you know executing it, and they had two mana up and besage you in hand, and so they just besage you my uh, underworld breach. There was no way I could have played around Besaju, and I, you know, I was going to go for it anyway. Uh, but that lengthened the game, and I spent much of the game, you know, both trying to pressure them with creatures while also digging for another breach, which would have just ended the game. And all three of my other breaches were in like the bottom twenty-five cards of my deck or so, uh, and so I had to cobble together some beatdowns and, and managed to do it uh, just in time. Uh, round two, I played against Jund. Where my opponent just didn't do a whole lot. Um, they multi five in one of the games. Both games just really came down to me drawing Urza Saga and them not. Not sure if it was in their deck. I assume it was, but um, you know when you're playing a mid range mirror, Urza Saga is key. Then I played against Tron. Um, they had mulliganed to three in game one and never got much going. Uh, one in game two, and then I don't remember exactly how game three went, but. Um, I don't know. I just looked, did things in one. Uh, I clicked buttons. They died. Yeah. But yeah. Double drew. Uh, and then the top eight. Interestingly enough, if you remember last week's episode, I said that the three decks I was most concerned with, you know, when I was thinking about the last weekend, were Four C, Is It, and Living End. And the seven other decks in the top eight were uh, three four color decks, two Is It decks, and one Living End, and then one Burn player. Um, I actually had to play against Burn in the semis, uh, but was able How's to. That up? Uh, I actually think it's it's pretty tricky because Eidolon is a big problem, um, and uh, you know they put you under a lot of pressure, so you can't really race. Uh, you know, you're using your creatures defensively and trying to combo them in that matchup, and any matchup where I'm kind of forced it into just one of my angles of attack, I'm a little worried. Uh, you, do, I guess you do have the second angle of attack is land an early Urza Saga, make some contracts, and find Shadow Spear. So you do have, you do have two angles that way, but your like your ledger shredders and Ragavans and things are mainly just trying to trade for their creatures or, or, or block. Um, I actually did a I on the fly figured out a, a cool way to win game two. Uh, I had you know stalled for as long as I could. I untapped on like probably turn five or six on five life. My opponent has two cards in hand, so I'm probably dead on their next turn. 
Uh, you know, at least that's what I'm thinking. And I have Underworld Breach, but I don't have Grinding Station yet. I haven't found one. But what I have found are two copies of Emery and two copies of Mox Amper. And I have a relatively big graveyard. And so uh, if you do the math, you can loop all of those at the cost of, of four cards in your graveyard per loop. Because recasting all four of them it takes 12 cards to escape them all. And the Emery's each mill four. So you're like, you, you cast one Emery, mill four, then you cast a Mox Amber, make blue, and then you cast the other Emery, mill four, then you cast, uh, you know, the other Mox Amber, make blue, and, and you keep doing that. And now, a couple of them were in my hand, so I was able to start it with fewer, uh, not using as many cards, and, uh, you know, I, I just need to, you know, find Grinding Station before I run out of cards in my graveyard, but you're able to, you know, mill, you know, 12, 16 cards after seeing a lot. Uh, and on like the third or fourth iteration or third or fourth Embry trigger, I think, uh, I, I was able to, you know, mill myself into the grinding station manually and then cast it from the graveyard because Underworld Breach is a busted fucking magic card. Uh, that was the semifinals, actually. My top eight matchup was against Is It Murktide? And people have told me that, or people have not told me directly, but, you know, from watching lots of, you know, YouTube videos and reading articles and, uh, just consuming content about the deck. The prevailing opinion seems to be that the Isn't Merktide matchup isn't good. That didn't really make sense to me in theory, just based on my knowledge of magic, and I murdered that guy. Now it's one set, one match, so you know you can't really uh, conclude anything from it. But uh, you know, uh, there's going to be a, a at least a paragraph in my write up about the deck that's going to go in our Discord. Uh, Right after we're done recording is when I'm going to start writing that. So I was actually going to ask if you were going to do a write up in the uh, in the Discord, or if yeah. you're going to do it like on the Patreon or something. But. Uh, well, it'll be in the Patreon section of the Discord. Okay. So yeah, you yeah. gotta you, you gotta pay. You gotta give us a, you gotta give us a dollar or two. Yeah. 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 You know, it's not, it's not much. What was uh, the what was the thing back in the day? Three dollars for the sideboard guide. Yeah. <laughs> pay, pay me for my several hours it's, of so time. It's really funny. I was actually talking about that earlier. I was like, this is a cool thing that we can start doing a little bit more since you know play is back at like a high level you know you you're playing more of these than i am right now and i, I will yeah. eventually when i'm not like it's the worst timing ever to have these events going on right when i'm like having to prepare for a pro tour in another in another game and like that is my job so like i have to do that um but you know you've got this and then i've uh, i posted a list the other day of the you know that format that i came up with and i was like thinking that Every now and then what I might do is I might just post a list, like my overall thoughts on it, like cards that I was iffy on, you know what I mean? Like write an article pretty much about it and start putting that in the Patreon as well, just for some extra stuff for our patrons at home. Uh, just so you get a little more bang for your buck that you've been doing, because I know you've supported us a lot through, a lot of y'all have been here through the the pandemic and a lot of the stuff that's been going on, and we haven't really returned that, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like with a physical thing as much yeah, sure. as I want to? Tangibly. Yeah, tangibly. There you go. That's a good way to put it. We haven't really returned this tangibly as I would like to, so I want y'all to know we are thinking about y'all. We really do appreciate y'all, and y'all y'all are the goats. Yeah. Um, y'all are the real MVPs. So uh, my so the, the is it matchup was just uneventful. I just ran the guy roughshod. And then in the finals, I had to play against four color, though from wa uh, my semi finished earlier, so I got to watch uh, basically all of the third game of the other semi, and I noticed that he had rest in peace in a sideboard, which is definitely a, a tricky card to beat. Um, this is open deck list, yeah. Uh, well, it's not open deck list. I just I watched their game, so I, I sure. got to see. Okay, uh, you know, my, my match went to turn four of turns in round one, so everybody knew what I was doing from round one on. <laughs> I think top eights of like any decent size, any decent thing should just be yeah. uh, uh, open deck list. I, anything with coverage, so like you know, 
this didn't have coverage. It was 30 people. I'm fine with it. I still think like something with a decent thing like this and yeah. you know it pays to have friends and scout for you like i just i, I feel like it should be open deckless. anyway go oh, ahead. i i definitely i i did some scouting in the the last couple of rounds of swiss just to figure out what everybody was playing it ended up not really mattering because of the way the the standings worked out i had to play against the guy i drew with in round four so i i never i never saw what he was playing um but yeah finals against four color that was also a pretty uneventful match game one um they, you know, tutored for their endurance and stopped my first, you know, attempt at comboing, but I was able to, you know, I had a second breach. So I just reloaded and, and comboed again. Um, and they just don't really have, you know, much else to stop that and not a, a particularly fast clock. And then in game two, they mulligan to five and never got a ton going, didn't have a Ren. Um, I remember, you know, pumping my fist on turn two when they, they didn't play Ren in six. Um, and I, I just want a fair game because they were, they were so light on resources. So, you know, a, a couple lucky games in there with my, you know, th- three games in the tournament where my opponents mulliganed, you know, into and didn't really play much magic, um, you know, including one, one game in the finals. But that, that's how it goes when you win tournaments. Um, I also think I I think I mulliganed once the entire day. Um, I, yeah. I, kept a, I kept a couple loose hands in the top eight. Like, you know, hands that were like, you know, four lands a threat, a removal spell, and a bauble that, like, you know, maybe it was like a threat, a, a breach in a bauble, or like, four lands, unholy heat iteration breach, where you're, like, not really sure what's going, like, where the hand is going. Um, you know, fortunately, this is a deck that can, some like, if you really need to, can iteration on turn two, kind of aggressively, because you can hit a lot more zeros with the Mox Ambers in addition to the baubles. Um, but that's still, you know, a, a risky play to make. I, I never, fortunately, had to do it, but no, the, the deck felt great. I think, you know, Ledger Shredder is a big upgrade over Dragon's Rage Channeler for reasons that I will, you know, get into in that write-up. Uh, I'll, I'll spoil part of it. It's primarily because it is not graveyard-dependent. So, you know, when when you're playing a graveyard-dependent combo and backing it up with an aggro plan, you want your threats to not be, uh, you know, graveyard-dependent. And while Dragon's Rage Channeler, you know, th- those surveils can sometimes be really helpful, and sometimes you actually combo with Channelers, like, I've heard of people saying, you know, games where they just drew triple channeler. Now, when I play my zero drop from the graveyard with breach, I just surveil three cards of the graveyard every time, and I don't even need grinding station. So, you know, you lose some of that. You lose some explosive draws. Like, I, I, I would love to be able to go turn one, land Ragavan, Mox Amber, DRC, go, and my opponent's just looking at two really, you know, key threats on turn one uh, and not sure what to do. Uh, you don't really do that because Emery and uh, and Raghavan are, are different colors. Um, you can live the dream with the one drum, though. You can go turn one, uh, Mox, land Raghavan, play drum off the Mox. Now I have two artifacts, play Emery. But with only one drum, that's not going to come up very often. Uh, yeah, true. But, you know, I, I felt good. I felt like I beat, you know, most of the other top decks in the format. Um it looks like, you know, Amulet Titan was a big winner over the weekend where Cascade decks didn't really do that well. And Team of Rhinos is probably among the, you know, top five or ten most played decks in the format. Team of Rhinos is the one I'm most scared of. You know, they have a pretty quick clock with the, the you know, turn three Cascade, make eight or ten power. They have uh, a lot of, you know, cheap removal for your early threats in Dead Gone and Bonecrusher Giant, even Petty Theft. And then they have Force of Negation endurance 
Force of Vigor in the sideboard. Sometimes they can play Blood Moon, which is which is annoying when you're a Saga deck. So they're doing a lot of really good things against you. So I like seeing that deck declining. Uh, I think this deck is a, a really good choice right now because I think it matches up very well uh, against Izzet and Forcey. Like neither matchup is a slam dunk by any means, but you're, you're like you you make that you're a, the thing I really like about it is that you're able to both get underneath decks with your low curve and cheap threats, but also go over the top of them with your combo. Okay. And there's not really another deck that can do both. You okay. know, the, yeah. the the other combo decks can only really go over the top of you. Yeah, they can do it quickly. You know, Amulet can turn three, their Titan and kill you. Yawgmoth can kill you on turn three. Uh, I mean, this deck can do that too. Like turn, your, your, your absolute god draw kills on turn two if your Ragavan connects. Um, but you, you can combo on turn three pretty easily. Just turn two grinding station, turn three breach, um, and, and have the zero drop. So, uh, you know, but the, the fact that you're able to do that while, you know, generating a bunch of card advantage with iteration and, and just value breaching and Urza Saga, uh, it, it's just such a versatile deck. And uh, that versatility it, you really do need in modern. And it's, it's one of the reasons that four color has been so good. It's a very difficult deck to get underneath because they have all those pitch elementals. So if they really need to, if, if you're going all in to kill them, they can pitch Solitude or Fury or Endurance, and they can find them with Traverse or Eladomri's Call and stop you. Um, and if they sacrifice some resources to do it, it's fine because you went all in. Uh, but they're also great going along, obviously, with the Omnath plan and Yorian and the, and the Emrakul. So you really need to match them on multiple axes, I think, in order to compete against Four Color. Uh, because otherwise, you know, you might be able to beat them in game one, but they're just going to sideboard into a configuration to stop you. And there's not much you can do about it. Uh, whereas this deck, because of the multiple angles of attack, uh, you know, there's not really a good way to sideboard. I think one of the common refrains I've heard about it is that, and it's usually framed in a negative way, is that every card is good against you. You know, cheap removal is good against you. Anti, like disenchant effects or stony silence effects are good against you. Graveyard hate is good against you. Discard and counter spells are good against you. Uh, so like, you know, everybody's going to have a lot of good cards against you, but they can't bring them all in. And they need to know which ones to bring in. And based on which ones they do bring in, and more specifically, which ones they leave out, you can tailor your own game plan to poke at whatever weakness that they leave. So a lot of it comes down to that, of reading you know, what your opponent is doing, you know, seeing what they do in game two, and coming back in three more prepared for how they're playing the matchup. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I think really valuable in, in Magic these days, being able, having those, uh, having all those options available to you. Okay, this would be a great deck to play in like a seven game series because you could constantly be making minor adjustments to change how you're attacking your opponent and they have to get, you know, and play that guessing game. And it, you know, if they guess wrong, they lose. Yeah, exactly. Now, I know you've kind of like alluded to it a little bit, but I want to hear you like definitively say, like, where do you think this deck is moving forward? You know, like, like, do you do you think this is a deck you could keep playing? Do you think this is a deck other people should maybe be looking to pick up and learn? Or do you think this is a deck that maybe it's a flash in the pan, you don't really have to worry about seeing this at events in the future? No, I think the versatility of the deck means that it should be a, a long-lasting player. The, the one thing is that you're, you're going to have to constantly be updating it. There, there's, sort of, uh, there's sort of three parts of the deck that are modular. There's the threat base, and right now, you know... I would say in a world where there's virtually no graveyard hate, which basically never happens, 
like DRC would be better than Ledger Shredder because it's just more explosive and it works better with your combo. Um, but there is graveyard hate, so that, that's I don't really see changing. But you know, I can conceive of of a weird weekend where there's just like very little graveyard hate, and and you can change that. You can also you know adjust the threat base by becoming more threat dense if you want to be more aggressive. I, I can see builds of this deck that play both Shredder and DRC, and I, I often do. Uh, and but you know personally, I would play the you know all four shredders before any drcs but I, I could see adding you know one or two drcs to the deck if i wanted to amplify the aggro plan for a given weekend then there's the combo aspect of your deck which is really the the grinding stations the breaches the mox opals i think the my current list or what i played last weekend which has three opal three station four breach that's about as heavy as you could be on the combo plan but i could see weekends you know particularly weekends where there's a lot of graveyard hate where you play two station and two mox opals in your deck. And maybe those are weekends where you replace those with Dragon's Rage Channelers, so you get to be a little bit more aggressive uh, and have you know less of a uh, reliance uh, on your combo. So, uh, and then there's then there's the disruption part of it. You know, what disruption are you playing? Because the deck can also grind. You know, you can use Emery and Ursa Saga and Expressive Iteration and Underworld Breach. Those are four very good sources of card advantage in your deck. You know that you play four of each, so you have sixteen cards that generate significant card advantage. Not to mention the card quality from Ledger Shredder, uh, and you know, I mean, or, this, or this deck goes through cards a yeah. lot. Yeah. yeah, card selection from using Bobbles with Fetchlands and everything that goes along with that. So you can sort of play a controlling game plan in some matchups, and and you know, against Hammer and Living End, that is generally what you're trying to do. You're trying to loop Tormod scripts and engineer explosives in those matchups uh, because you know those decks have trouble dealing with that, uh, and so you do want a good amount of interaction. I think that's one of the main mistakes people have made is is not including enough interaction in their deck. And when I'm watching these videos, I just see like, oh, they just didn't have an answer to their opponents like early Ragavan, and that like carried the game, or they didn't an- you know have an answer to this Murktide region. And if they had, they would have just had more time to grind through their deck and find the-, the cards that they needed. And I ended up playing you know four on Holy Heat in the main and a Bolt, so I had five removal spells, um, which is m- more than I've seen in basically any list. Uh, I've seen four, and then you have the of course the Aether spell to find off of- off of Saga. I've seen lists that, that main deck spell pierce. I'll go in in the write up about why I didn't do that because that's a, a very complicated theoretical decision that I made, but I think a correct one. Uh, and then you have plenty more disruption in the sideboard. You know, with Teferi, which was my sideboard MVP all weekend. Uh, I mean, that card just continues to be so messed up. <laughs> just so good. What card was uh, that again? Sorry, uh, Teferi, Time Rambler. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The you're flashing white for, for yeah. sideboard cards that are it's Teferi. EE third color prismatic ending and I'd want wear tear, um, which is you know a very much a flex spot. So the sideboard actually gets a lot more interactive, and you, you tend to cut down on the combo and become a more interactive deck post board. Um, so you know the you can adjust the list a lot. Like you know if the uh, if unholy heat and lightning bolt are not the right pieces of disruption to be main decking for that metagame, you can change those. You can reduce it. You could increase it. Same with the threat base. And then you the combo. There's not like other combo pieces you can play, but like I said, you can you know reduce or increase the amount of combo cards that are in your deck. So these are all small adjustments that you make, uh, but they're ones that you need to make to you know to stay ahead. Uh, because this, this is not a deck that has like super polarized matchups. 
you know, when people think of combo decks, they often think of, you know, very polarized matchups. Do, does my opponent have the right disruption and a clock, or do they not have those things? This isn't really a combo deck first. That's another mistake I think people make with it. This oh, is, for sure. This is a deck yeah. that is in that false tempo, to use a Jerry Thompson term, uh, like Splitter Twin kind of vein. Now, the Twin played very differently in that it was a, a reactive deck in its fair game plan. This deck is proactive in its fair yeah, game it was, plan. It was like almost like a control deck that just ended the game. Like yeah. Immediately, just like, the game is over. Like. Whereas this is an, an aggro deck that does that. Um, but, you know, a similar concept in terms of, of that false tempo, by which I mean you d- distract your opponent by dealing, making them deal with threats that you don't care about and then whittle your opponent's resources down that way and then deploy the threats that, that you know really matter uh, and win the game with those. So, so you're, you're, you, all of your plans can be used as a decoy or your main plan and you can change that from game to game or even in the middle of a game depending upon your opponent's draw, your draw, and, and all, all those different variables. So it, it's a tricky deck in that respect. I think you have to have a very strong theoretical understanding of what you're doing. Um, fortunately, I think that's one of my main strengths as a Magic player, so I was able to, you know, p- pick up on that relatively quickly. But that, you know, the other good news about that is that you know you, this is not a deck that is easily hated out. You know, you can't you can't bring in a bunch of combo hate because then I can just cut down on combo cards and kill you with you know threats and card advantage and removal. And you can't just you know just focus on playing a fair game because then I'm eventually I'm just going to combo you and it doesn't matter you know how good your fair game is that you have Omnath and Emrakul because you know my combo goes over the top of yours. So yeah, I, I think it ultimately just comes down to you know making those small adjustments of which plan is going to be your sort of plan A, B, C over the weekend, and then you know finding the the right disruptive spells to play for, for that meta game. And if you do that week to week, you should be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, now, is this a deck that people should start to worry about a little bit? Like, do you think the 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 what's the word? Am I, the 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 playability of it? Maybe not the playability, but like just the numbers of it showing up. Do you think this is a deck that people should prepare for more? I'm on the no side. I don't think it's going to see a drastic increase in play. But what do you think? Uh, no, I mean it. It would need major. Uh, representation at, at really you know bigger a events event. and, and more yeah. consistently you know me me winning one thirty person RCQ is, is yeah. not gonna put uh, up some magic online results or something because yeah. this is this I mean like this is a deck that like I kind of heard of and like some some people who are like really in the know are like yeah that's been a deck for like a little bit and when they say that they they say it like a little more aggressively than they mean to but like. This is a deck that kind of comes out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Like when you first sent me this list, I was like, "What the fuck is this?" You know, like, what's going on? And I was like, "Oh wait, I've heard about this." Kind of thing. It's just like it's a deck that I think a lot of people shy away from. Like, here's the thing: like you know this from teaming with me. The kind of decks that like, especially when it was me, you and Brendan, the kind of decks that we gravitate towards and the ones that we gravitate away from. And like, this is a deck that I would look at and just be like, "Yeah, that that's not for me." Unless you like 100 percent are like, "This is the best deck. You will win the tournament." And I had time to prepare for it. I just wouldn't play this deck. I would just play something else after looking at it. Yeah. And this is a deck that's more your speed. So I think that's that's part that's going to that's gonna affect this for sure. Uh, I, I completely agree. Uh, this is not going to become, you know, a world beater of a deck anytime soon. Um, you know, maybe if, if it, you know, crushes some energy events or whatever, uh, th- things could change. I do think the deck has that potential if, uh, you know, players pick it up and, and learn it and, and uh, you know, commit to it. But at this point, it, I think most players are pretty well committed to this four color, you know, is it Merc died cascade kind of metagame that we have. Um, and the, the four color or the, the, is it Merc died deck, which is the, 
I believe the closest deck to you know uh, to breach in the both the way it plays and the way it's built. You know, there's a ton of overlap between Bobble, Iteration, Ragavan, Ledger Shredder, uh, Unholy Heat, Lightning Bolt. You know, the, and so in their non-land cards, it's about half overlap, I think, uh, if, if you just crunch the numbers. And then uh, and then you just sort of think of Urza Saga as your backup threat instead of Merktide Regent. And uh, instead of playing more Disruption, you know, all the additional counterspells that the Izzet deck has, you're playing a combo backup. So instead of you know resolving a threat and then stopping your opponent's interaction with counterspells or stopping their you know over the top threats with with counterspells, you say okay I'm fine with you trading here. I'm going to follow it up with something even more powerful now that you don't have any more answers. Um, so you know different in a very key aspect, and this is something that I'm going to go into in the write up. Um, but that familiarity uh, and more straightforward game plan that Isaac Merktide has is definitely a lot more appealing to the wider player base. So I don't think this deck, you know, is ever going to reach the popularity of, of Four Color and Isn't Merktide. But I do think it, if, you know, you put in the time to learn it, it is every bit as powerful as those decks. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do you feel about Modern going forward? Do you think there's going to be any big shifts going on or anything like that? I don't, I don't think this is going to, like, move the needle. You know, I saw press again this weekend um, on Twitter. Someone was talking about it. I think it was the person that won one of the modern challenges, and they put up, you know, you ever seen the one where they put up their whole rounds, and, like, if they won or yeah. lost, won or lost, and there was just no four-color in it, and, like, you know, they won the challenge, and someone's like, this four-color does not exist, and I'm like, online, it really actually doesn't. Nobody wants to pay, you know, $2,000 for a deck on Magic Online, and the deck is priced out of the the, the loan bots that, like, the deck just doesn't exist, and it, it, it it's a weird dichotomy kind of thing that's happening where, like, it's the best deck in paper, you know, everyone keeps saying it, but like you just never see it or play against it online. And does that mean that like maybe your deck is a really good, a good choice for online where that matchup just doesn't happen? Well, uh, I think the four color matchup is good. So I would say you're probably worse online. The deck is also very click intensive when you combo. So you got to be efficient yeah. in your mechanics, yeah. um, you know, when you're doing that. Uh, but I like. I think one of the strengths is your ability to go toe to toe with four color, and you know, like I said, beat them early and beat them late. And most decks can't, you know, don't have that ability. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would be more concerned of things like Team of Rhinos being more popular online if four color isn't around. That's a good um, point. Mm -hmm. And and that's a matchup that that I'm more scared of. Um, you know, or maybe other linear decks that can just race me and don't really care about my disruption. Like that, I, I think the I, I haven't played the Yawgmoth matchup, but that is one that seems kind of scary to me. You know, you you got to have an early unholy heat to stop a Yawgmoth, and that's really you know all you can do. You can tutor for a spell bomb, I guess. You do have a needle in the sideboard, but they have an endurance in their main deck, which is quite good, and they have a lot of good cards in, in their sideboard between more endurances and force of vigors, and you know they could play discard if they wanted to. I don't think that would be a strong choice, but uh, you know they could bring it in. Um, so it's those linear decks that I'm actually more scared of. And I think four color is pretty good at beating those decks because they just have such a wide array of good disruptive options that they can play. Um, so I would say you're probably better in paper than online with breach. Yeah. Okay. That makes good sense. Uh, you know, something I'm always interested in that I think doesn't get enough press is like the overall strength of other decks than just four color in paper versus online, because the metagames are drastically different. I think, and it's, yeah. it's a good point and a good thing to be thinking about because here's the thing. 
whenever I'm preparing for a tournament and I'm looking for deck lists, and I'm trying to, I always go to the, you know, the, the wizard site and go look at the, the last challenge winning decks or whatever the big events are. Look at the decks, look at the, the tendencies, right? And you're like, well, all these winning ones are playing a slightly different list with slightly different removal. You know, like a big thing, like, like here's a good example. In Legacy that's been going on a lot, a lot of the blue-red decks have actually been cutting down on the number of lightning bolts they've been playing and playing more in Holy Heat's main. You know, they're up to like, I've seen somewhere like they have four on Holy Heat and only like two lightning bolt. Yeah. And I'm just like, why? And I want to know why. And I go look through and I'm like, oh, this makes sense because Magic Online is generally a week or two ahead of what's going on in paper. You know, they're a little more like today realistic yeah. kind of thing. And this is a thing that can happen in your metagames at home when you're choosing these decks for these kind of stuff. But it does, it it's not perfect, right? Like I just said, you know, there's there's different metagames and different stuff between paper and online because of like certain decks just not really existing yeah. in certain spots, which is weird. The, the other big difference I, I would say uh, is that you see more burn in paper than you do online. Yes. You know, with, with the loan uh, services now, it's a lot easier to like, you know, play most decks, you know, four color being the notable exception. Um, so you don't really see a need for budget decks um, uh, in the online space as much as you do in IRL when you need to actually get the cards. So, you know, I was looking over the results of the NRG uh, from last weekend and Burn was like the third most played deck in the modern event. And Burn, there were also like four Burn players in our 31-person field. Uh, you know, one made the top eight. There were, I think, three were live in the last round. You know, I went out because in the last round, I'm, you know, going down the row, looking at everybody, trying to make sure I know what everybody's playing in case I play them in the top eight. So I'll know the matchup. And, you know, I remember making the note that uh, I'd, I'd seen two burn players and they both had the same color sleeves. So I just made a mouth of notice. Like they're playing, they got yellow sleeves, they're playing burn. <laughs> and and then I noticed a third and he wasn't playing yellow sleeves. I was like, God damn it, you ruined this for me. This is a nice little demonic I had going. Um, but there were, you know, a, I think Burn, you know, is a deck that that's the default modern budget deck uh, for a lot of players, uh, especially players that haven't bought a lot of cards over the last couple of years during the pandemic, because it doesn't play, you know, really a lot of Modern Horizon stuff. Uh, and it's it's reasonably, you know, competitive against both those top decks, Four Color and, and Is It. Uh, you know, the Four Color deck, obviously Omnath is a big problem, but that's like their only good tool against you. <laughs> so... Uh, if they don't have the Omnath, or if you have like the one skull crack for the first turn, or the uh, they, the Roiling Vortex out of the sideboard, like you know, they don't have much of a clock. You, you yeah. can beat up on them, uh, and then you know, is it too? They really need a quick Merc Tide Regent to to be good against you. Um, so I think Burn is a reasonable choice, and that's definitely a tricky matchup uh, for this deck uh, because it, you know they're really putting the pressure on you. Whereas in most matchups, you're the, you're sort of the beatdown, and you get to dictate the terms of engagement. Burn is one of the decks that I think flips the script uh, on Breach, and they're dictating the terms of engagement on you. Uh, and you know, you, you still got you know plenty of good tools. You can combo them early. Uh, you have a lot. Is one of the reasons I actually played a lot of removal in my deck was like you need. I, I don't want to. I don't like being in the situation where my opponent plays a turn one guide or swift spear. And I have one removal spell, and I'm like, do I have to take multiple hits from this just in case they have a turn two Eidolon? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, yeah. 
Uh, otherwise, that Eidolon is going to put a world of hurt on me. Uh, I've, and, been the, I've been in this situation so many times where, like, you don't do it, they don't play Eidolon. I'm like, dude, I just took four yeah, from this fucking yeah, spear. And that yeah. two extra damage, you know, that can mean yeah. the difference, right? So, you, you know, there, there's there's payoffs and, and punishes uh, on either side. I don't like being put in those situations. So I wanted to have two removal spells against them as often as possible. Uh, you know, fortunately, in the in the one match, I was able to do that. The, the one good thing is that you can take no damage off of an Eidolon by finding either Spellbomb off of your uh, Saga. So if like you're going the Beatdown plan, you can find the Shadow Spear and just equip your your Constructs. If you're going the Combo plan, you'll find Spellbomb, bounce the Eidolon without taking any damage, and then go off. Um, so the, you, you kind of have two options. M- make Saga important. Saga also a land that doesn't do any damage. <laughs> uh, real quick... Um... I know you joked about this on Twitter, but I just got an update that Eric Hosmer is actually being traded to the Red Sox. Nice. <laughs> Which, like, I... I what? <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm pretty positive what's going to happen here is the Red Sox are going to take... Like, this is my initial thing. The Red Sox are going to take on Hosmer and get a decent prospect from San Diego for this and then pay for some, some more Hosmer's contract, and then you'll see the Red Sox probably sell. They'll probably trade away a few of their players or something now or whatever, so... <laughs> We'll, we'll see. Sorry for the, 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 it literally just popped. It's like when we were doing the show during um, the NBA free agency or whatever. And yeah. like, I remember something big happened like in the middle of the show. Like st- stuff's going to happen. But I just know you and was it Elliot Raff were joking about this. Yeah. You wanted to trade a case of Sam Adams for him or whatever. It's probably around the same kind of thing. Yeah. So, and, I, and I wanted Oktoberfest specifically. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. No, yeah exactly. None of that summer out bullshit. You know that bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, while we're on the subject of other stuff, let's make sure that we do mention our. Lovely, lovely sponsor. That's Bear Stern Man, man with two ends. Um, make sure that you check them out. Let me make sure I get the correct. Uh, I gotta find the the message from the, with the new code that we talked about last time. Ross, have you, I know you said you uh, you were trying out some of their stuff recently. Like, did you didn't you get a new shipment from them recently? Oh, I actually forgot. I got. I've got to send the guy an email. I just know I'm. I, I'm actually. I gotta get a shipment soon. I'm. I'm on. I'm like halfway through my last bar of soap. Yeah. Oh, I was about to say I'm, I'm catching up. Like I was, I had some stuff like before I got a shipment, so I had to like get through that first, and and then into theirs. Hold on, I think I put the. Yeah, I know where this is. My bad. Okay, sorry for everybody at home for having to listen to this. My bad. Um, <clears throat> I'm usually more on the on the ball for this kind of thing, but yeah. So make sure to check out barristerandman.com. That's made of two ends for any of your needs or their kind of stuff. Um, that was really bad. I'm usually really good at this. What is wrong with me today? Well, I think I'm distracted being by on the, the ball. Side. You're on the baseball. Yeah, exactly. So the new code is MTG Rants. That's plural. MTG R A N T S one five fifteen. All caps. They give you fifteen percent off of your first order. But if this is the first time you're using this code, you will get that fifteen percent off, even if you've used one of our codes in the past. Um, I have a feeling that's something that's going to continue whenever they change the code. You know, we change the code, what, like once or twice a year because it starts getting found by Honey and all the other companies. And so they're like, yeah. hey, like, you know, we're going to change the code on you guys. And that's fine. And I'm assuming that, you know, you repeat customers will still be able to get your value. So that's something to look forward to in the future. Don't forget, if you're one of our EU listeners, I know we got a good bit out there. That stuff's coming. They're, they're, their products are coming. In your, they might even be in your continent as we speak. I know that was coming very soon, so make sure to check out barristerandman.com, our lovely sponsor. It's been with us since practically day one, almost. I mean, these guys have been great. I've never had a problem with them. They've shipped yes. me. They've been amazing. And their products fact, are excellent. You know what? You know what? I have had one problem. One problem. What they send that? me too much, Ross. I can't get through <laughs> all of it, and I can't try everything, and I want to try everything. Um, See, I, so, I've just started giving extra stuff away. 
Yeah, okay. exactly. I've been, you know, like here or there. Um, you, you mentioned Elliot Raff. He, he had mm-hmm. to shave his beard a few months ago for a play. For a play. Yeah. And I, I gave him uh, one of the things of, uh, of shave it, aftershave uh, balm. Uh, because I noticed, he, you know, he had a lot of razor burn one day because he, he grows, a, you know, he shaved a full beard. Uh, and I'm like, dude, use this. And it came back to me that, you know, a few days later, I was like, yeah, that was incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so he's just been using it the anytime he, you know, shaves the neck or, or trims off the beard, which I do, too. It's great. I know that last week we talked about one of the really f- good questions that came in our mailbags. We have another one today. It reminded me of um, they're like, what's one of the, you know, your funny magic things? They said maybe it doesn't even have to necessarily involve magic, but. Uh, you know, I, I kind of drew a blank at the time, and like that happens a lot when, like, you know, we're non-tournament related stories from yeah. Magic tournaments. <laughs> I have a, I have a tournament related story that's kind of funny, but it it has to do with like the whole situation was kind of funny, and like hopefully it, it conveys well because Brian Basoko loves telling the story because he was there for it, and I was more flabbergasted the entire time, and so like I'll just tell the story, okay? Um, so. It's me, Brian Basoko, and a guy named Craig Edwards, and we're playing at a local team event. And there's probably like, you know, like 12 to 10 to 15 teams, something like that. You know, there's like 30-ish people in the room. And we're playing, I think it was like Pioneer Modern Legacy. It was within, it was it was like a year ago or something. It's like, you yeah. know, one of the first events after, you know, we started having like in-store stuff again or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I just remember because everybody's masked or whatever. So I'm obviously playing Legacy. And it's round one, and we sit down, and I don't, I don't recognize, I think, anyone on the other side of the team, but, like, I could just be, like, missing their face kind of thing. But, like, you know, they're, they're, they might not be from Baton Rouge, or, like, it's just some players that I don't interact with, you know what I mean, kind of thing. Plus, during the whole, like, since I've moved back to Baton Rouge, I haven't been going to my LGS a ton. I have been a little bit more lately with the Flesh and Blood stuff, but, like, you know, I just wasn't playing a lot of Paper Magic, etc. I got you the, the base of the story. So we sit down for round one. And we're like shuffling, doing the whole pregame stuff, right? I'm like maybe chatting with my team, maybe chatting with the guy. You know, I'm chatty. I tell the guy the, the hearing thing. And I present my deck to him. And he cuts. And uh, I won the roll. And I'm like, hey, I'll go first. Or whatever. So I draw my opening hand. And the guy's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, hey, do you have like a pregame effect or something? It's like, fine. You know, like my hand doesn't matter or whatever. And he's like, no, you didn't say whether you're going first or not. And I'm like, oh, my bad. You know, I'm like, I, I thought I did. It, we're wearing masks, like maybe I mumbled or something. I'm like, I thought I did, but yeah, I'm going first. And he's like, and he's like, yeah, like, but you've like looked at your hand, or whatever. I'm like, well, yeah, but it's it's fine. He's like, no, you 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 get in trouble for this. He's like, you know, you get a penalty for this. I'm like, no, you don't. It automatically defaults to you just go first. Like they fix that rule. Yeah. And he looks at me dead in the eyes, and he goes, if we were at a grand prix, you'd get a game loss, or a match loss, or something. Like just dead pants. And at this point, you know, we're kind of going back and forth a little bit. Um, uh, Craig, who's sitting in the middle, just looks over, and it's funny because he and I exactly the same time. And you go, "That's not how that works." Like verbatim, like like complete jinx. Or Roach, like that's not how that works. I don't even think that's how it would have worked in like 2004 when exactly, penalties were right? much greater. Right. And so, um, to to break break up the story for like half a second, I do feel like like this guy was like, I see this happen a lot. When people get like the first time they start getting competitive and they like go to a big event and then like start to play, like they get that like rigidness about them. You get what I'm trying to say here, right? Like everything has to be strict, strict by the book. I mean, I went through it. I'm I'm not saying that I'm innocent here, but like I'm way more laid back now, especially like 
yeah. that my career is mostly over. I had success. I don't care as much anymore. You know what I mean? There's not as much you're, pressure you're on You're clawing me. for every inch. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't blame people, but so like at this point, Brian and uh, Craig are both getting involved, you know, and I'm, cause like, I'm just having this back and forth with this guy. And I'm just like, what are you, what are you talking about? That's not how this works. Like I would not get in trouble over this at a Grand Prix. And that's when the kid who like, who was shuffling and I wish people at home could see me. You can see me. He like puts his deck down, looks at me like right in the eyes and swear to God, deadpan just goes, well, how many Grand Prix have you been to? Like, as if that's the challenge of like, he's right and I'm wrong. Yeah. And he says that, and I am literally stunned into silence by he's this He's trying statement. to big time you. Yeah, exactly. Right? Clearly he has no idea who you are. He would just, look, it, look, everybody at home, it's, I'm not trying to be that person. I'm trying to be like, do you know who I am? But like, it, I am the most decorated person in this room by a fucking country mile. And then our team combined is the most decorated team in the room by a mile. We have a two-time Open champion. Craig's got, like, multiple Grand Prix top eights. I've got multiple Grand Prix top eights. You know, we've got, like, a million SCT top. You know what I mean? Like, we're the most accomplished team in this room by an actual country mile. Yeah. Right? And he just deadpans that. And I don't remember what Craig does, but Brian falls out of his fucking chair. (laughs) He's just losing it at this point. With how many Grand Prix? And, like, I don't know how to respond. There's, like, like a million things go through my mind. Right? There's, like, I kind of wanted to big time him back. I wanted to be, like... Oh, are you asking him to Grand Prix I've top eighted? Or how many I've played in? You know, I kind of wanted to do that kind of thing or whatever. And then, like, Craig just goes, like, what? And I just go, I don't know, man, like, 30? Like, maybe 30. And he just yeah. goes, wait. And, like, you could see the eyes get big across the table. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, man, I've been playing forever. Like, yeah, what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing? And that, so, that's what I would do. Is I, 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 But I would make a show of trying to think of the number. Yeah, so I would, like, it. look yeah. up a little bit. Like, I'm thinking, I would, like, get my fingers out, be like, okay, carry the one. I, I would I would make a big point of saying, well, my first one was in 2003. <laughs> and, and, say, and then I like, count forward, like, and then there's this one. Um, and that was the one I top-aided. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know, like 30? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so, uh, and so, like, I'm just sitting there, and I'm just, like, aghast, right? You know, like, I, I can't figure out, like, how to respond, and, like, like you know, it seems like I'm, I'm thinking, I say that, and then here's where another funny thing happens, and this is funny because of, like, the of what happens at the timing, and it's a dagger to me at the same time, so, like, obviously there's a, t- you know, there's another team to my right, you know, we're, like, literally at tables with teams, and the player to my right is, like, somebody who knows me and knows who I am, right? And he just, like, look, because, like, he's obviously hearing this interaction because, like, you know, voices are getting raised, like, something's going on. You know, people are like, you know, you look over, you're like, what's going on? You know, if you're having a real conversation, we're not playing, you know, you get what I'm saying? And so the person to my right just looks over and looks at that guy, looks at me, and he goes, Tannen, haven't you won a Grand Prix? And then the, the look on the other dude's face, I just look at him, I'm like, no, I lost the finals. Thanks for reminding me. You know, like, like <laughs> one of the, you know just, the, just the dagger, you know, like, just the actual dagger of getting second place or whatever again. And I'm just like, no, I haven't, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. And, like, the look at the other dude's face, it was just... Also, like, I hope this person doesn't listen to this because I'm, like, painting them in a really bad picture because I don't even remember their name. And, like, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but, like, just this whole instance was hilarious. So then we play our match, and he's playing D&T, and he beats me game one or whatever. And um, I remember... It's one of those teams, like, you know how, like... How is his demeanor during the match? Um, what you'd expect. It was kind of standoffish, like, I'm yeah. going to get you, like, I'm better than you, yeah. superior. Like, definitely this, superior. This is my chance to prove myself. That's that's yes. what I'm assuming is going through yes. his head. And so this is where I'm actually getting that. So he wins game one, and he's one of those guys that, uh, this is actually a pet peeve of mine. He's one of those guys that immediately when his game's over, he, he loudly announces to his teammates what happened. He's like, yeah, we're up a game. 
He's like, oh, and he's, and he's playing Delver. Because, like, you know, the DNT players are always like, yeah, I've got a great Delver matchup. Yeah. You know, like, yeah I'm, I'm aware. You, you, you do okay in the matchup, like, or whatever, right? Yeah. And so I just, like, look at my teammates because both of them look at me, and they remembered that I had completely changed my sideboard because I knew that, like, four or five teams were playing DNT in the tournament. So, like, I'm literally boarding in, like, three of braids, like, three other... Like, my, my deck's about to, like, drastically change into something, like, absurd. And I just whoop the ever-living shit out of it in the next <laughs> two games. And so when I'm done, I just go... I just go, yeah, we won the match. Uh, he was playing DNT. And to this day, to this day, um, God, I think I broke Ross. Everybody, I think I broke him. I wish I could see Ross right now. Holy shit! And uh, to this day. Because this is probably, I don't know, over a year old or something at this point. To this day, every now and then, and it still gets me, um, Brian will just deadpan look at me and just go, how many Grand Prix have you played in? <laughs> he, like, once a month, I just get, like, whenever someone big times or says something, he'll just say it. Like, he just brings it out. And, like, every now and then I'll do it, too. But it doesn't matter where we are or what's going on. I just lose it every time. So I've, I've kind of forgotten about that story, and someone reminded me of it the okay. other day. And I've, I've got to remember this for the next time I see Pasoko so I can do it to him. Oh yeah, just hey, how many how many Grand Prix have you played in? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know, thirty. <laughs> the number is way less than thirty, obviously, or whatever. But like, you know what I mean? It's just like you're trying to like you're trying to give them the emphasis of like, dude, yeah. like, come on, man. Like, it is. Everyone thought it was like so funny because it's like you picked the exact wrong person to do that to, like, in the room. You know? Yeah. You just try to you just try to big time like the only person in the room or one of the only people in the room who actually like has finishes. You know? Or whatever. So it was just it was just so funny back and forth. So that was a really good question that we got from last week's MTG Rants. I wanted to put one in there. I knew that one was more magic related, but that one was too good not to not to share. I agree. Uh, that's that is now one of my favorite stories of all time. Yeah. Okay. If you, so, if you couldn't already tell, <laughs> that actually leads into a legacy question that we got from Raven Christ from this week's, and it's what's the legacy's infatuation of one of sideboard cards, assuming no wish type effects. And I can answer this quite a bit because you know you've been you've got firsthand experience of watching me play a ton of Legacy, where my sideboard would be like maybe a three of, like maybe another three of, and then just a bunch of ones, right? And people talk about it, and I can talk about this directly from the Delver point of view. And this it's obviously different decks that don't play the same kind of cards Delver does. But I'll tell you this: the decks that play cards like Ponder, Preordain, Brainstorm, Expressive Iteration, it is perfectly okay for you to have a one of in your sideboard because the odds of you seeing it are drastically higher than any other format that you play. It's unbelievably higher than modern, standard, pioneer, anything like that, because of the fact that you're going to go through so much of your deck as the game goes on, especially with the fact that almost every deck that we sideboard in the one-ofs against as Delver players are the matchups where the games are going to slow down, like we're taking Force of Will out of our deck. If we're taking Force of Will out of our deck, we're generally playing 10 or 12 turn games. You know, the game's going to go back and forth, back and forth. You know, the decks that we don't are when we're bringing in a bunch of surgical extractions and, like, fluster storms, and you're just trying to survive for three turns and kill them, you know, kind of thing. You know, yeah. the, that game's drastically different, right? T Tano. You know, 55. You played in 55 Grand Prix? Yeah. Jesus Christ. That's, like, that's easily double me. That's easily double. But you also lived in an area where you could go, like, you know, I have to mostly fly to everything I go to, so. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I expected that. So um, 55 is a lot. How many Grand Prix have you played in? But uh, I, I feel like someone's going to put that in the in the chats in our Discord quite a bit. Or I'm going to get tweeted. How many Grand Prix We're going to have to make a in? new thread for people to just post how many Grand Prix they've played in. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so, um, but yeah, so like that's that's a big thing in Legacy with that is the cards are so impactful and so good, and the fact that you're going to go through your deck. Now, I can't speak to the other decks from an experience point, but it has probably some stuff to do with that. Like, A, you don't have enough room to just put four, 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 four. Like, stuff doesn't really overlap enough. You need specific stuff in specific situations. Ross remembers how happy I was when the card of Braid got printed. And he was like, why are you so happy about a Braid? I'm like, I get an extra sideboard slot. Because, like, it con- it con- it con- uh, condensed. Yeah. I needed to be able to kill an equipment piece, but I needed to be able to kill another creature in certain matchups. So I was like, well, now I have this card that, like, it's a little more, it's a little less efficient, but it's fine in these matchups while being very good in all of these. So, like, yeah, it's very important for that kind of stuff. And that's just it. That's that's my overall answer to this question is the fact that you're going to go through your deck so much quicker and you're going to find these super impactful one-ups a lot easier. Yeah. I completely agree. It is easier to play lots of singletons when your deck is high velocity. You see a lot of cards. Um, it is also easier to play lots of singletons when your deck has lots of looting or rummaging effects, because then if you draw a bad one of, you just loot it away and turn it into something new. That's another thing, too, is the fact that you can loot or you can hide yeah. stuff with so Brainstorm. Bra- Brainstorm is how they do it in Legacy, which is not exactly looting, but somewhat similar. Um, but if you're playing, you know, Ledger Shredders, if you were playing Faithless Looting when that card was legal in Modern, uh, you know, and, you know, if you're playing Fable of the Mirror Breaker, uh, you know, a significant number of these kinds of effects, then y- you can more easily diversify and play, like, lots of singleton cards that are high variance, you know, the, the cards that are either nines or twos, and then, you know, then you're going to get to realize that situation where there are nine a lot more often and you could mitigate the downside of it being a two by just looting it away. Uh, so that's another re- uh, reason like just brainstorm uh, and the power of that card uh, to do that in legacy. I also think doing that in general is like not bad, even without those things. I think people uh, tend to look at it and say like, Oh, you're, like, you're never going to, you're so rarely going to draw this one of card. Like, why are you putting it in, in your sideboard? It's like, you know, I don't. I don't want to draw it that often, but I do want to the opportunity to draw it. I actually, I have an, I, I sketch it out in my head of a, a theory article uh, about uh, marginal utility and its application to magic, and why if you look at the numbers, like playing singletons is a lot more valuable than you think it is, uh, and people should do it more often. Like I've had over the last you know many years, I've had sideboards where like I played one leyline of the void. And for years, you know, when Leylands were first printed, the mantra was you play four or zero because you mm. had to have them in your opening hand, right? But yeah, but having a haymaker is pretty nice that if you do hit it, yeah. And but like you're not four times as likely to have it in your opening hand when you play four of them versus when you play one of them. But you are taking up four times as many slots, so you're actually mm-hmm. getting diminishing returns. Um, and it's the marginal utility is all about comparing the you know value you get of the increased probability of drawing a card versus the slot that it is taking up in your deck, and that and it's people don't consider that second aspect the cost of a slot in your deck uh, as nearly as often as they should because you know you only get seventy five of them or ninety five if you're playing Yorian really ninety four uh, because you have to play the Yorian. Um, and it, when you do that, it, it can change your perspective on things. And I've often done that. Like I remember when I was playing Elves in uh, Modern for the first time at, at SCG Richmond in 2018. Um, you know, I was building the deck, and I realized like this was a deck that wasn't going to be able to sideboard much. So I made the decision of 
you know, I'm a I'm a green deck splashing white for Vizier so I can, you know, combo uh, with Devoted Druid. I can, you know, have some the, some of those Haymaker white sideboard cards that ever, you know, and but I was like, I'm not going to bring in many cards. So I played one Rest in Peace. I played one Stony Silence and I played one Fracturing Gust in my sideboard and I would just bring them in when appropriate. If I didn't draw them, fine, I'm a proactive deck. I'm just going to do my thing. And if I did draw them, great, this card is awesome in, in this matchup. And I played against Affinity like five times in that tournament. I stony silenced several of them. <laughs> Only mm. needed one. Uh, yeah. You know, can't get lucky if you don't try. I remember there was a there was an open that we played in, and last minute I made the 15th sideboard card. Um, what is it? Is it Darkness or whatever? The one black man enchantment that all white creatures get minus one, minus one? That's a... Uh, that's, um, Dread? No, dar- darkness is the fog. Uh, yeah. you're, you're talking about... Um, the one they used to always play against me when I was playing Maverick, um, whatever it's called. Um, but I think I think you remember there was a tournament where yeah. I added one at the last minute, and I played against Death and Taxes at least three times that tournament, and I drew it all the time against them, and like I kept bumping you. I think I kept bumping you every time I drew it, or I was going to play it against them. It's it's something in the night, gloom of night, something like that, maybe. No, dread of night, dread of night, dread of night. There we go. Yeah. The, all the black cards that do stuff to white stuff is like dread gloom <laughs> yeah, yeah gloom is an anti-white card yeah yeah so like yeah and like i kept drawing dread and I, I think you actually got it aggravated like the fourth time i like bumped you because i just had dread and I, <laughs> you're just like yeah, come on or yeah. whatever and stuff so yeah i mean yeah. like you know if you don't it, it's like it's like the poker adage it's like i make my own luck right like i believe in luck but like i'm not just just trying to get lucky i'm putting myself in, in the best position to get lucky and then to reap those rewards, yeah, and stuff as well. And, so. and it, 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 when you think when you think about it in that marginal utility framework, um, it ends up being better to try to prepare for a broad range of matchups and play those like just one of like you know haymaker cards in your sideboard. Uh, and if you play you know if you play enough of them for every matchup, you're always going to have something to draw to. And you know, yeah, you you're like you might draw them less often in any given game. But you have that option in every single game, whereas if you just played four of one Haymaker for, you know, one or two matchups, then you have to just pray to hit those matchups and and then, you know, have a higher likelihood of of hitting the cards. So you're just sort of putting your variants in different places. Um, You know, and I think if you if you you look at it under this framework, like the best place to put the variance is in your draws and especially so when you have a lot of control of your draws as we said initially right, let's do a couple overrated underrated and then get out of here hold, 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 hold on Tim. i'm sorry before we get into this i just want to note that um you know I, i'm planning to spend a lot of this month setting up both my stream coming back but also a personal patreon um so if theory articles like the one i just talked about are something that you know are interests you? Uh, that's going to be a part of that Patreon because that's the kind of oh, stuff sick. I like writing. I have several yeah. ideas in the bank because for years SCG didn't you know didn't want any theory articles or very rarely did. Um, so you know though that article is definitely one that I do plan on writing at some point. Um, so just cool. you know keep keep, be keep an eye out for, for it because that that will be coming. Hashtag soon. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Managing, Managing the, the clock. clock. I is think it, this is underrated. I think it's very important in a lot of games, depending on the deck you're playing, obviously. But when you're playing four color, it's a it's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and uh, I think it, it comes down less so to um, 
less so to just like rushing through your your really important decisions. Um, you know, part that mainly just comes down to preparation. Like the, the more prep work you put in, the you know more time you're going to be able to play on autopilot and play at a high level. But you know, there's the are your mechanics swift? Are you taking appropriate shortcuts uh, when you can? Uh, where like you know, you, instead of uh, I think the the really common one is people that go in legacy they would turn to crack a fetch get a duel shuffle present you, you know you would you would shuffle give it back to them and then they would cast a stoneforge mystic and then have to do it all over again you know you should be ca- you should be showing them the stoneforge while you're shuffling the first time and if they let it resolve then you can just go back in immediately that things like that so I, I, a lot of managing clock comes down to get, getting those shortcuts through especially with fetch lands you know uh, i think everyone knows that i'm a fan of, of shuffling i think people shuffle enough um, and so because I know I shuffle a lot and in games that where there is going to be a lot of shuffling, I definitely try to get these shortcuts in. And so I have that time. And then there's also just end game, uh, behavior where, you know, sometimes your entire, uh, like your game is pretty well wrapped up. And rather than search for the, like the hundred percent right decision, you should just be making decisions at a quicker pace to try to get the game over with. Um, mm. you know, I think Jim Davis is sort of the, the best at that. He's a very slow. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Yeah. But if you want Jim play a control deck, once he once he knows he has the game locked up, he is playing at warp speed. He's <laughs> like, moving very very fast. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I think that is an underrated aspect of Magic, and I think people, uh, as I said, go about it in the wrong way. You you want you want to manage the clock well, so you have time to make those decisions because that's the important thing. Making those decisions correctly is what's going to make or break your game. Uh, so make sure that those decisions are, aren't made under duress under, of the clock by doing all the other things. This one actually comes from a local friend of mine. He messaged me this one. He's like, hey, I got an overrated nerd for you. This is from Colin Payne. He says, lunch breaks in competitive events. Underrated. They, they should happen. So I, I also think underrated. He thinks overrated. Uh, they've been to a couple events lately, like little, um, what are they, just RCQs? Little RCQs. And he's like, yeah, we've been getting lunch events at all of them. And, I will say this, if you're driving three or four hours to play in an RCQ and then have to drive three or four hours back, I want the tournament over with as soon as possible so I can understand there. But if I'm traveling to an event, like, you know, I've flown there, done whatever, like blah, 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 I'm completely okay with being able to take a break in the middle of the tournament. Yeah, I, I agree with this. I don't think we should be doing lunch breaks for my, like, five-round RCQ that started at noon. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. And, uh, but, but yeah, the, the, the big two-day events or, or the, like, you know, NRGs that have the two long one-day events... You know, I know it can be, especially with the two one-day structure, like the tournaments tend to go a little long, and but it's I think it's so important for players and staff and everything just to, you know, just, just get a little bit of break, even if it's only half an hour. Like, that. that's enough to at least get food and, like, eat half of it and then save the rest. Yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. All right, Yeoman5 says, clearly communicating your new OP system all at once with details and links to affiliated TOs. This is from, <laughs> you know, March or whatever. <laughs> Just take it a shot. Love it. Love it, Yeoman. I, I feel this one especially because... Sunday, I'm just like, oh, I should probably know all the details of the regional championship, right? It took nope. me so long to find them. I like, I tried like DreamHack's website, couldn't really navigate that well. The links on Watsi's like didn't go to where I wanted. All I wanted to see was the price structure of the event. I knew, like, I knew the dates and I know where it is. You know, Georgia World Congress Center in Atlanta, 18th and 20th of November. But I just wanted to see the price structure and how many people queued for Worlds and how many people queued for the Pro Tour. 
Those are the only three things I needed. And it, it took me a solid five, maybe even ten minutes to find it. And I am not inept when it comes to, you know, Google fooing. I've been dealing with Watsi's bullshit on this level for many years. So, uh, yeah, un- underrated. <laughs> Firmly. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, the next one. Um, some of this stuff's a little more time sensitive, so I'm going to, like, kind of skip over one or two. Catholicist Potatoes. Uh, I think properly rated. I think most people really like potatoes and realize that they're awesome and they're great in a variety of forms. The one thing I will say, and this is going to be very controversial, mashed potatoes, overrated. Mashed potatoes are definitely overrated. Uh, I think potatoes in general are underrated and what you can do with them. Like pasta is great, obviously. Yeah, I potato gnocchi. Browns. Awesome. Yeah, gnocchi, I love hash browns, yeah. stuff like that. Also, Lakas, <clears throat> love making lakas. If, if you're trying to eat healthy, potatoes are like a pretty big part of doing that. Surprisingly They're, high in vitamin C. It's actually the, the majority of vitamin C in the American diet comes from potatoes. Uh, also pretty high in vitamin A. Um, and, and yeah, no, potatoes are, are excellent. Uh, I, and just uh, one last note, if you want to make latkes at home, don't top them with sour cream and applesauce. That's amateur. Cream cheese and red pepper jelly. Oh, there you go. I do love red pepper jelly. All right, Joe, Mr. English says, the bit in Lord of the Rings where Samwise says, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew, potatoes. Potatoes, you know. Uh, uh, I think that part is a little overrated. I found... It's the same in the book, too, that it, the stuff with them, the, after you've seen it once or twice, the stuff with them, like, walking with uh, Gollum and all that stuff, it just, I, I find myself fast-forwarding through it a lot or skipping through parts of it. It's just, it's too much. Like, the, the acting's great, the writing's good, but I just, like, it, it just grades on me at, at some parts now. Nah. All Samwise all the time. Underrated. Yeah. Him Big Samwise trusty fan. frying pan. <laughs> Samwise, you know, saw through Gollum's shit. Uh, Rubber Ducks Law says having a common naming convention for your cycle of lands. Oh, hugely underrated. Yeah, hugely. Underrated. Yeah, the fact that the triomes aren't all called triomes really irks me. I refuse to learn. I don't even know the names of the new ones. I just call them Grixis Triome, yep, Pant Triome. Everyone says, "Yep, that's what everyone says." Because it, it's a fucking triome. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. Especially when like when the first five were all called that. Like you're telling me you couldn't figure out names to do for the for these. Like, just come on. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be uh, good enough for us uh, this week. Ross, we haven't been doing the typical uh, giveaway, but I, def- I mean, the typical closing, but I want to make sure that you get to do it this week since you have your Patreon stuff in the future. Uh, where can people find you and hear from you more? Well, follow me uh, at, on Twitter, where I am at Ross Hunneds. That's H-U-N-N-E-D-S. Um, and then on Twitch, I'm Ross underscore Miriam. Uh, you know, that this is... I know I, I, it's become a joke when I say soon, but it's 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 actually going to happen. So uh, if you want to give me a follow on Twitch for now, uh, so you get notifications when I do uh, go live, uh, and then on Twitter is where you know you can follow me to just keep abreast of all of these things. You would have you know you can see my deck list, uh, you know, for the from last weekend, and and uh, you know I'll announce all you know content and things there when the, when the patreon launches so uh you'll you'll get to see that as well so those are the two places you know um in the internet has really ruined my mind when you said that you know like, i know i've been saying this for a while but it, like it really is going to happen sooner all i could see was the gif of uh what's it um anchorman where he's like i don't believe you because <laughs> 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 like, that's what i would snap or respond with if you tweeted this so i don't believe you yeah. You can follow me on at the Tin and Grace on Twitter. A lot of stuff about magic, flesh and blood, and a lot of baseball right now this time of year. 
uh, kind of stuff. Just kind of been just doing my own thing on Twitter lately. But uh, Ross, anything you got anything coming up anytime soon that people can look out for you yet? I know. So you know, you I was some... going to have another RCQ coming up, but now I can't play it. <laughs> um, I am going to be in Baltimore in uh, for the team event. Uh, yeah, so in about two and a half weeks, um, and I'm going to be, be teaming. In France. I'm going to be uh, teaming with Dan Jessup and Harlan Fuhrer. Very powerful. A good team. Yeah, yeah, very lucky to snag that team since Zach Allen apparently couldn't go. Uh, and I just swooped in and took his spot. Uh, also good. Now they'll probably believe me when I tell them my deck is good and just put me in the modern seat. So that's nice. Yeah, um, exactly. So. Yeah, so I'll be playing with them in uh, SEG Baltimore in two and a half weeks. Um Past that, unclear. I, I know there's some uh, some energies in, season, in the, their last season that are close enough to me that I'll definitely want to be hitting up. Um, the, the one in Newark, Ohio, uh, I, I think will be easy. Um, convincing the Roanoke people to go to Fort Wayne, Indiana, harder, but I want to go. Um, but that's a lot. That's like an eight hour drive for us. Um, and uh, but so I'll, I, I'm going to be playing a lot more Magic in the back half of this year. I think there's there's more events near me. Um, I, I don't know what SCG schedule and how the, how far they've announced that, but I'm going to be try to try to play a few of those in addition to Baltimore. I think I think their September one is Columbus actually towards the end of September, so I'll definitely be there. Love Columbus. Um, uh, definitely tell me ahead of time of these events you're going to. I might just like randomly show up to one. Yeah, that's going to be part of my my August planning too. Is to set a schedule of events for the the you know at least I'll, I'll set it until through uh, Atlanta. In, in November 18th yeah. to 20th. There's normally not a ton of events in, in fact, once you get to the holiday season anyway. So I maybe be convinced to come to Atlanta to hang out too, because that's my birthday. So like I might oh, yeah. just come for the weekend and have fun. But There's going to be so many people there. Yeah, so many people. No, I, 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 like, I've heard that it's going to be like all the all the old heads standing. It's going to be the it's going to be the boomer reunion. Oh God, I might have to come now. But yeah, because uh, I've, I've got three events left for the year for sure. Like, you know, that, that I know for sure I'm going. I'm going to France in a few weeks for the Pro Tour. And then we have Nationals and Worlds coming up. Nationals, I, I if I remember right, is in Columbus. It's, it's somewhere on the East Coast. And then Worlds is in, I think, San Jose, if I remember right. It's the, it's the West Coast. So it's like as far away from me as possible within the country and then into another country. So <laughs> just absolutely love it. But I uh, wouldn't trade it for anything. So that's the stuff that I'm guaranteed to be doing. But, you know, you might see me show up at some event or something. We'll see. We'll see. Especially if it's drivable or something. I might I'm, because um, I might take some long road trips sometime this year. I've been kind of wanting to do one. You and I have been talking about me coming up to visit and stuff. So I might just, like, work that into uh, the event that's going on on the East Coast. I might come hang out in Roanoke for the week and then go to the event from there or something. Yeah. So, yep, so. yeah, for, for, for August, it's, it's just Baltimore for me. Uh, otherwise, it was going to be RCQs at their, the other store in Roanoke, Blade Gaming. That was in two weeks. And then SCG was going to have a second one. So apparently, so WPN stores get two qualifiers, two RCQs, and uh, WPN premium stores, I should say. And WPN regular stores get one. But the premium stores also have the option of just running one tournament that's a two-slaughter. SCG took the option of running two one-slaughters. Um, so uh, theirs, is, theirs is at the end of August, their second one. And Blades was was middle of August, right before Baltimore. So uh, I guess I'm not playing those. So August f- freed up a little bit, uh, and I'll just be in Baltimore. I might go down to Blade just to hang out, especially if people I know are going, because Blade Gaming is conveniently located near a, two breweries and the best margaritas in Roanoke, so I might just uh, hang around, have a few drinks, watch other mm-hmm. people play some Magic. 
Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I've I you know I've played a ton of Magic this year, especially the last like three months or so. Played a couple tournaments earlier in the year, but I feel more energized on Magic than I have in quite a while. I've actually brewed several Pioneer decks in the last two days, one of which I think might be sneakily really good. Um, I won't. I don't I, believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks really good to me. The others I don't think are good, but they look. That sweet. makes me. That makes me believe it even less. And you're like, I, I think it's really good. I'm like, all <laughs> yeah, right. I've got, I've got six decks here, and I think two of them have real potential. The other four are more funsies. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, well, that's going to be it for this week's episode, and we'll see you all next week with, I'm hoping, uh, new cards and stuff from the new sets that we're going to be talking about. So we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening.